Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Erica Engelhaupt about gory details. First, wanted to remind you that if you like any of the conversations I have with an author enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast. It'll take you to a link to buy the book through bookshop.org. Now, they don't pay me anything for this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, please do give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. This is Dr. Ina Park, author of Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Erica Engelhaupt is a longtime science writer and editor whose work has appeared in National Geographic, Science News, Scientific America, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and NPR. National Geographic is also where you can find her Gory Details blog, which has spawned her first book. It's titled Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science. Erica, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm great. How about you? Doing very well, thank you. You cover so many different, wonderfully morbid topics in this book. As a matter of fact, part one is titled Morbid Curiosity. I'm guessing one of the subjects that's garnered a lot of attention for you so far, as it has on your blog, is in the chapter titled, Would Your Dog Eat You If You Died? I've always assumed (laughs) that because dogs are scavengers, they will eventually eat a dead owner. After all, these animals will eat until they puke, and then they'll eat the puke after that. And then they'll roll in the puke. (laughs) (laughs) You're right about that. I have two at home that will uh, prove as much. But considering that these cases actually do exist and research has been done on canines eating their dead owners, are dogs usually eating their owners due to starvation or just for the fun of it? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. And, you know, when I started looking into this topic, first of all, I started looking into this because a friend of mine asked me about it. She's a woman who lives at home by herself with pets, and she had read something indicating that somebody's dog had eaten them after they died. She was horrified. She she came to me and said, could this really happen? And I thought, well, there's probably something in the forensic science literature about this. If it does happen, then medical examiners would know all about it. So I started looking into that. And what I discovered is that, yes, it's not terribly uncommon for pets, not even just dogs, but, you know, other animals too. You're not even safe if you have a hamster, frankly, but a pet that is in a room with a dead owner may end up eating them. It's not necessarily just due to starvation though. That was actually kind of the most disturbing part of the whole thing that I found was that there have been a number of cases where people have gotten eaten by their dogs pretty soon after death. The dog has a full bowl of food still sitting on the floor and the police come in and find that the dog has already been chewing on the dead owner. And at first I thought, this is horrible. (laughs) People are going to think I'm some kind of dog hater (laughs) reporting on this. But actually nothing could be further from the truth. I think that actually the reason why that happens and why dogs may eat you even if they're not yet starving is because they get basically panicked when they can't revive their owner you know so if you think about a dog yes they're a scavenger they 
have no problem eating a dead body necessarily. If you've ever taken your dog for a walk and found a dead squirrel or something like that, you know, sometimes they will go for it. (laughs) (laughs) And so certainly there are cases where, you know, a dead body isn't found for some period of time and the dogs do start, you know, get really hungry and actually eat the dead body as food. But just as often, it's not about needing food. It's about this panic when they might start licking the owner's face and they don't wake up. Then they might try something a little more aggressive. They might bite the owner, trying to get them to respond. And then they taste blood. And then the licking and the biting might turn into eating. So... (laughs) You know, (laughs) in a sense, you can't really blame them. Imagine how traumatic it is, you know. Imagine your dogs. If they're like a lot of dogs, they don't like it when you leave. And a lot of dogs have kind of a separation anxiety. And then when you come home, they're really excited to see you. And so you can kind of imagine how they might feel when all of a sudden you're laid out on the floor and they can't wake you up. Do they go after specific body parts when they do start? I guess because they're licking faces, they might be eating faces more than any other body part when that's discovered? Yeah, the faces tend to go. Mm. (laughs) They do tend to focus more on the face, the arms and hands and legs and feet, you know, the extremities, which is different from what they would do if it was purely about food, like a feral dog or a coyote or wolf. If they're actually killing and eating prey or they're scavenging something, they'll tend to go for the gut first, you know, try to get the liver and all of those great nutrient-rich organs and so forth. Whereas I think it says something that a household pet who encounters the death of their owner is not behaving that way necessarily. They're doing more what they would do to interact with that person as a pet, which is interacting with their hands and with their face. Mm. You know, just like how dogs, <laughs> they're like trying to lick your face all the time and they're used to interacting with your hands. And so those are going to be more the kind of places that they're going to turn their attention first. Well, my kids roll around with them all the time. I'm not sure I'm going to let that happen anymore since the licking evolves <laughs> to the face eating. But uh, I'll have to handle that when we're not having this conversation. We know King James the sixth of Scotland from his version of the Bible. But that's a side note in your mention of him. Why does he appear mm-hmm. in gory details? Yeah, he was quite an interesting character. We think of King James with the King James Bible, but before the King James Bible came out, he was actually really into witches, demonology. As King James VI of Scotland, he wrote a book actually in 1597 called Demonology in Form of a Dialogue. And this was like 10 years before the King James Bible. And so he had gone on this whole campaign to eliminate witches in Scotland. He was really into it. And he was a believer in this idea that persisted for a really long time called cruentation. Sometimes it's called the ordeal of the beer. But the idea is that a person who is murdered, that they are able to spontaneously bleed in the presence of their murderer in order to tell us who Hmm. committed the crime. And as crazy as that sounds, this was something that was believed in, and even used in courtrooms right up until, in some cases, in the 1800s, 
cruentation was still believed in. So King James was a big believer in this, the idea that you could identify the murderer by looking for the spontaneous bleeding of a body that <laughs> when their murderer came close. So sounds nuts, but like I said, right up until maybe the last known case was in Illinois in the 1860s, where there was a case where they had like 200 townspeople march by these two bodies of people that had been killed <laughs> in order to see whether the body would bleed when any of them approached, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine the nervousness and, standing in that line? Like, I'm pretty much barely going to be touching this person as I'm required to poke them as walking by. Yeah, exactly. You have to imagine, like, you poke a body enough times, something might come out of it. <laughs> And if something did come out of it, then you were obviously the murderer. Yeah, so we got that idea partly from, <laughs> from King James of the King James Bible, believe it or not. Going all the way back to 2007, a story appeared in the news about human feet showing up on the Pacific coastline near Vancouver, Canada. It was always a single foot almost always wearing a tennis shoe. People were understandably worried that this is the work of some sick serial killer, but how did dead pigs actually help us to learn where these feet were coming from? Absolutely. This is a great example of one of those crazy-sounding experiments that scientists do that actually leads to understanding something pretty important. So you would think all these feet are washing up, you know, it's like 15 feet washing up in Canada in a certain area called the Salish Sea over the course of, of about a decade or so. So you start to think, well, you know, there must be a serial killer who's got something against feet chopping them off or something. Well, what these scientists in Canada did at Simon Fraser University was they were interested not just in the feet, although it ended up helping solve that mystery. But they were interested in general in what happens to a dead body when it's disposed of or falls into the water. Let's say somebody either dies at sea or maybe they're killed and someone dumps them in the ocean. If you start thinking about it scientifically, a body's gonna decompose probably differently in something like um, in the ocean than it might in a lake with fresh water and certainly than it would on land. And there hadn't been a lot of experiments with this because one of the main ways that scientists learn about the decomposition of human bodies is through what are called body farms, which are just a few scientific locations around the world where they're set up to actually do experiments with human remains that have been donated. So these are people who've donated their body to science and their remains are used in experiments to see how they will decompose in different situations so that forensic experts can then use that later for bodies that are discovered in different situations. So what these scientists did with the pig was they were using the pig as a model of a human. They couldn't use a real human body for this experiment just because of legal and ethical concerns in Canada, they weren't allowed to do experiments like that with real human bodies. But pigs are a lot like people <laughs> biologically. And so what they did was take pigs and basically drop them to the bottom of the sailor's sea with cameras on them and all kinds of monitors and sensors and just watched what would happen. 
And amazingly, what they found is that a pig can decompose really quickly down at the bottom of the ocean. And this was a shallow coastal area. And so you had lots of scavengers that would come in. You had crabs and lobsters and all kinds of sea creatures that would come in and immediately just start chewing away on this pig's carcass. And lo and behold, the kinds of things that they will go for first will tend to be, you know, like the soft tissues. And so the tendons and ligaments can get decomposed, chewed away, eaten more quickly. So if you extrapolate that to humans, your foot is actually not attached (laughs) very well to your leg. When you think about it, it's mostly held on by a lot of tendons and ligaments that are joining the bones. On top of the fact that that body part is also covered up by a tightly tied shoe too. Right. And so picture that you've got a person wearing shoes who for whatever reason has expired in the ocean and (laughs) the scavengers are going to not necessarily bother trying to chew through a sneaker first, but they are going to get all of that soft tissue, the tendons and so forth that are around the ankle. And so lo and behold, feet tend to pop off pretty quickly in the decomposition process. And then combine that with the fact that if you're wearing sneakers, sneakers these days tend to have these really lightweight foams in them. So they float. So Mm. boom, perfect recipe for floating feet is going into the ocean in a place where there are lots of scavengers who can chew your feet off and then wearing sneakers (laughs) that Mm. will cause those feet to then bob straight back up to the surface. You spend uh, some pages talking about eating bugs, partially through your experience as a consumer at the 2018 Eating Insect Conference, a three-day expo where scientists and those who love eating insects gather to share research and to eat some bug. Now, people are going to have to read this book to find out what that's all about, as well as some of your favorite insects to consume. But I was interested to read about maggots. Maggots are nasty, Mm -hmm. but maggot farms are popping up in droves all over the U.S. and across the world. Why are maggots perceived as a potentially valuable component of a healthy food supply? Absolutely. I mean, I was really surprised to learn about this. When I went to this conference, the big buzz in the insect growing crowd was black soldier fly larvae. Well, fly larvae are just maggots. And so there's this particular species of fly, the black soldier fly, happens to be tasty, nutritious, and (laughs) and relatively easy to grow in large numbers. And so the idea is that by growing all of these maggots, you can use them as a really environmentally friendly form of agriculture and a really great protein source, very nutrient-rich very healthy for a wide variety of animals. And so right now, you're not going to necessarily go out and buy dried maggots to eat as food for yourself. (laughs) But the chicken that you are going to eat for dinner tonight, or the pork chop that you might consume later this week, those animals may have eaten black soldier fly larvae. So right now, the idea is to use these maggots as feed. 
because actually a lot of the food that we grow, a lot of the crops we grow, ends up going to feed other animals that we're going to then eat as food. And so when you think about it, like why would we deplete our oceans of fish in order to get fish meal to feed to chickens and hogs and so forth? It doesn't really make a lot of sense to be depleting our resources in order to make this protein that we're going to eat. So a chicken is perfectly happy to eat maggots. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter to the chicken. You grind it all up into some kind of dried meal and chickens think it's perfectly great. So while I would say you don't have to worry yet about um, there being uh, maggot meal probably in the food you're buying at the grocery store, certainly it is coming into the food chain and it's going to be a pretty big business it looks like. People were really eager to start up their own maggot farms <laughs> <laughs> all over the world. It's already really pretty big in China. Hmm. Your favorite disgusting scientific experiment has to do with feeding human semen to blowflies. And this process actually helps with criminal justice. Who discovered this and how does it help? Yeah, I loved this. So there's a scientist in Australia named Annalisa Dirtle, and she was studying blowflies and she got concerned about the idea that blowflies could be contaminating crime scenes. So when you think about it, when you have any kind of blood or body fluids or a dead body at a crime scene, the first thing that's going to show up are blowflies. Those are like those blue bottle flies. And there's a whole group of species of blowflies that are really well evolved to find a dead body. So those flies will show up at a crime scene and they will be eating and doing all of the things that flies do landing on the body often may then fly away, fly into another room, go wherever, and they, what's the first thing they do? Of course, they poop somewhere. Hmm. Well, if the fly has been eating blood, then its poop will contain some of that blood and importantly, the DNA that was in that blood. Likewise, any other bodily fluid that has DNA, like semen, same thing could happen. So she got interested in this and she did experiments to see what would a blowfly eat at a crime scene. So she presented them with a whole blowfly buffet <laughs> of different body fluids as well as foods, things they might encounter in a crime scene. So they had a choice of semen or blood or saliva or even honey or peanut butter, things like that. <laughs> and the thing that she found was that semen is, as she described it, basically the crack cocaine of the blowfly world. <laughs> they would zero in on the semen and they would eat so much of it that they would get almost like drunk. Wow. <laughs> they were so stuffed and they would just kind of stumble around and then they would kind of like your dog, they would vomit that up and then eat it again. And it was just really disgusting how much they loved semen for whatever reason, whether it's something in the smell, there are fatty acids in there that maybe are attractive to them. But for whatever reason, they zero in on that. And semen, of course, is something that would have a lot of DNA in it. So if you think about the level of sensitivity that we now have in detecting DNA, it actually can be a concern 
that a CSI person, you know, a crime scene investigator, may collect a sample at a crime scene thinking that it's a bit of blood spatter when actually it might be fly poop. And this actually does happen. I saw at a forensic science conference, I watched a whole talk where scientists were talking about how to distinguish between a fly poop and a blood spatter on a wall. And it was amazingly hard to do. I mean, they were really struggling with coming up with good methods to distinguish between the two. So you can imagine that you might be a totally innocent person, but maybe you, let's just say that someone has sex with another person. That person's semen is left behind at the crime scene on the bedding or whatever. That person is then killed. Someone may come in and find not only the semen on that bedding or whatever, but they might find that person's DNA spread around the crime scene in what looks like blood spatter even. And now that seems really suspicious, right? Like why is your DNA in this, you know, showing up in blood spatter? You must've been involved with this crime. So it sounds far-fetched, but there actually have been cases where because this DNA techniques are so sensitive now, where they've picked up DNA that appeared to have been transferred from place to place where the person wasn't even there at all. There was this one case in 2013, a guy named Lucas Anderson in California, his DNA was found under a victim's fingernails. Now that sounds incredibly suspicious, right? But it turned out that he had nothing to do with the crime. He had incidentally just been handled by the same EMTs on that day because he had gone on a drinking spree. He was very sick. Paramedics came and took him to the hospital. Perhaps that paramedic didn't change their gloves. Somehow they got Lucas Anderson's DNA on their hands. And that same paramedic then went to a crime scene where someone had been killed and got Lucas Anderson's DNA on that person. And when they ran the DNA under this guy's fingernails, it came back as a match to Lucas Anderson, who was in their database because he had some other criminal history. And it seemed like open and shut, like how do we find this guy's DNA on a victim? Well, it turned out that he had nothing to do with it. He was in the hospital when the crime occurred, but just through touch, his DNA had been transferred. So it's actually not that impossible to think that flies could be contaminating crime scene by moving from place to place and carrying DNA from somewhere else. And it's just amazing that now our techniques are so sensitive that we might pick up DNA that came from someone who a blowfly encountered hours ago who had nothing to do with the crime. Your Honor, it wasn't me. It was the blowfly. Absolutely. (laughs) Speaking of murder... You have a chapter that I believe is specifically titled The Most Murderous Mammals. And when we're talking about the most murderous mammals, that is a species that routinely kills its own species, humans, surprisingly, aren't even close to the worst offenders. 29 other species of animals kill their own more frequently than humans. Meerkats, which are members of the mongoose family, are the most murderous. Just how ruthless are meerkats towards other meerkats? 
Yeah, they're much more than we are. I mean, like you said, we're only number 30 out of about a thousand mammal species. Let's see, in lemurs, I think it's like 17% of deaths result from lethal violence among lemurs. So imagine if almost 20% of us died as a result of murder. That's insane. And it's even higher than that in meerkats. They're so cute. It's hard to imagine <laughs> that they're <laughs> that, that they're, you know, so vicious and violent, but they are and it's actually a lot of breaking another stereotype. It's also largely females that are more aggressive with each other and so there tend to be these turf wars among meerkats <laughs> and the females will often be the ones who are the murderers. Dolphins, while extremely bright, also have aggressive flaws. For one, they're rapists. Do they also go yes. after fellow dolphins in other nefarious ways? You know, there's been a lot of speculation about that. Of course, dolphins and whales, you know, these are harder animals to observe. So rare behaviors are harder to find. But there have been a few sightings that indicate that dolphins will sometimes kill each other. Now, on the other hand, not to ruin all cute animals uh, <laughs> for us. <laughs> rabbits, by the way, rabbits, yeah, kill each other a lot. But huh. you know who doesn't kill each other? Bats. It's almost unheard of for bats to kill their own kind. That is shocking. Um, and people here in Austin are yeah. going to love to hear that, by the way, considering how much of our infrastructure is built around bats. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been to Austin and watched the bats coming out under the bridge and it's amazing. And I love watching bats. Of course, now we all have a little more of a sense of caution yeah. now that we understand a little bit more about how bats can spread viruses like the coronavirus. <laughs> so certainly be careful about your interactions with bats. Close human contact between humans and bats is something that I unfortunately can't recommend, but I do love watching them from a distance. And I have a new appreciation for them knowing that we are much more likely to kill each other than they are to kill, <laughs> to, to kill one another. I don't know why it made me so happy to get to the chapter titled A Practical Guide to Cannibalism, but I did. Maybe it's my foodie <laughs> curiosity, Erica, of what human would taste like, but I would only try it if it were humanely harvested human. There's a long list of animals that are more likely to eat their own than humans. What sort of species fall into this category? Well, some of them are the creepy crawlies that we tend to think of. You know, one thing that happens in spiders and some insects and scorpions is called matrophagy, which is animals that will eat their own mother. That's probably the most horrific yeah. <laughs> kind of cannibalism, I would say. And that, you know, you will have spiders and insects that basically, <clears throat> when they're born, they basically just kind of eat mom from the inside out and she performs the ultimate maternal sacrifice <laughs> in that sense. Um, but yeah, lots of animals will practice cannibalism. Lots of animals practice all kinds of things that we like to think of as being off limits to humans, necrophilia included. <laughs> <laughs> that was another thing that I looked into and crows, there was a study of crows where they were very surprised to find that sometimes they would commit necrophilia and again, like all of these things, there's different reasons that animals are doing things. And so cannibalism, you know, it's something where for a lot of animals, they have a different kind of reproductive strategy and 
life strategy. And so if you're something like a seahorse, I'm spoiling all the cute animals here. (laughs) Seahorses are another example of something that will commit cannibalism. You know, if you're something like a seahorse and you pump out like thousands and thousands of little babies, you're not real attached to all of those babies. (laughs) Some of them might need to be food (laughs) in certain circumstances. So sometimes it's when a mother may be nutrient poor, she may eat babies. Sometimes there are just too many babies. (laughs) Uh, Babies will eat each other. (laughs) So there are all kinds of things that happen in the animal world that we might not approve of, but it gets the job done. (laughs) Freaking seahorses are just a bunch of asexual cannibals. That is noted. Back to humans for a second. When humans do eat humans, what is a human's nutritional value, according to archaeologist James Cole of the University of Brighton? Yeah, so he did a study looking at humans from a different perspective, which is how many calories are in a human. If a human were prey, would it be very good prey? And the answer is, well, not really compared to a lot of other animals. So a 145-pound human, for example, has about 32,000 calories in their skeletal muscle. So 32,000 calories in their skeletal muscle versus 163,000 calories in red deer's muscle. Wow. So actually, we're not really high calorie. Now, if you were, say, on a mountainside (laughs) and someone next to you froze to death and that was all you had to eat, those 32,000 calories would start looking really good, right? (laughs) Um, You can survive for a while on that. But compared to a lot of other animals, like let's say we're looking at why did humans practice cannibalism back in prehistoric times, because we know we find evidence of skulls and bones and things like that, where it looks like there are tool marks and it looks like people were cleaned in the same way that you would clean an animal to eat it. So why were they doing that? Was it just as a food source? Well, maybe, but other humans wouldn't be very easy prey and they wouldn't be the most rewarding prey to catch. So that kind of leads you to think that there are probably other things going on in many cases for why humans would be eating other humans rather than purely because they're so delicious and (laughs) so high calorie. (laughs) And not to spoil anything, but according to your book, humans taste less like chicken and more like pork. Yeah, that's what I'm told. (laughs) The scientist, James Cole, who you mentioned, he said, you know, he didn't feel quite the same way about smelling bacon after finding that out. (laughs) (laughs) That's well said there. Who is Realdus Columbus and what ridiculous discovery claim did he make in 1559? He discovered the clitoris in 1559, or so he believed. He wasn't the first, of course, to discover this part of the female anatomy, (laughs) but he thought he was, (laughs) and he was very excited about it. He called it the Amor Venus, or the love of Venus, and he described it at great length and did understand that it had a sexual function, unlike many of the anatomists who had come before him. Vesalius, who was a famous early anatomist, 
in the uh, 1500s, he had dismissed the clitoris as being an aberration, something that only hermaphrodites might have. It was not normal for a female to have anything that was resembling or functioning like the penis. Even though it was so long ago, that sort of ignorance just never ceases to blow my mind that their thinking is that antiquated. Are you not around women at all when you're coming up with that opinion? I don't know. But, you know, Columbus described the function based on what appeared to be real experience with it. And (laughs) I don't know if Vesalius and others were just that unfamiliar with the anatomy of the women that they were presumably having sex with. I don't know. I do feel really bad for the women of ancient times if men were this clueless about (laughs) female anatomy. (laughs) Absolutely. And it took a long time before we got to the point where even in medicine that the clitoris was accurately described, represented. And on that note, who is Helen O'Connell and what is her contribution to our understanding of the clitoris? Yeah, she made enormous contributions, actually. Helen O'Connell is a urologist. She was actually, I believe, the first female urologist trained in Australia. And she found that during surgeries on the urinary system, for men, there was a lot of care put into not cutting any nerves that would be part of the sexual anatomy if you were doing a surgery, but for women, there was no such map. There really wasn't a lot of knowledge about exactly where all of the nerves went and uh, what all of the parts (laughs) were for the clitoris. And so she actually did dissections and mapped out all of the nervous system of the clitoris, as well as just describing the full structure and she found that what we often consider to be the clitoris is just the external part. She described the full body of the clitoris, which personally I was kind of blown away when I first saw a diagram showing the entire structure that's internal to the body, because you just don't usually see that. I don't think a lot of people really even know what the full clitoris looks like. So she was the first one to really map that out. Parts of it, of course, were known. There had been dissections over centuries. So there were some diagrams, but to really fully map the whole thing and get all of the nerves and where they go and so forth, she was the first one to really put that together. And that was in the 1990s. So it took us that long. And the entirety of the clitoris, the other end is actually part of the explanation for the mythical idea known as the G-spot. Is the G-spot a myth, as many of us have believed throughout our lives, (laughs) or is it real? Well, it kind of depends on your point of view. It's either mythical because the G-spot was thought to be part of the vaginal wall that was sensitive to sexual activity, and it's not, or you could look at it as the G-spot is real because what scientists have discovered is when you look at this full structure, like Helen O'Connell described, it basically goes 
back into the body and then there are two arms called crura that wrap kind of around the vaginal wall and then there are two bulbs of erectile tissue similar to the tissue in a penis that gets erect that also hug around the vagina and so a g-spot orgasm is basically when you get stimulation of the clitoris from the inside of the body so we normally think of stimulation of the clitoris as being outside of the body the external part of the clitoris but the clitoris can also be stimulated internally through the wall of the vagina so is the g-spot real well for some women maybe it is because their bodies are such that they're getting stimulation from the inside of the vaginal wall but everyone's built a little bit differently so mm. some women you know the exact shape and orientation of all the parts might be a little bit different and so that may help explain why some women have orgasms during vaginal intercourse and some women don't now this next bit was merely a footnote in your book but i think it bears mentioning how big of sexual deviants are pigwins huge <laughs> they are amazingly sexually deviant <laughs> I, to the extent that some of the first scientists who studied penguins in antarctica wrote up their findings on the behaviors of penguins and the report was considered so dirty that it was hidden away in a museum for for like you know decades and decades before anyone dusted it off and actually read the thing because it was just considered to be like pornographic basically they're known for basically going into kind of a sexual frenzy where, where they will just attempt to have sex with anything live or dead. Why are roaches thought of by insect experts to be one of the pinnacles of evolution on this planet? Oh, gosh. You know, I have a whole new appreciation for roaches. And I have to say, I hate them just as much as everyone else does. I mean, <laughs> they're my least favorite insect. <laughs> <laughs> and I do have, you know, a lot of insects that I love, but there's just something about roaches. But you have to give it to them. They're almost indestructible. I mean, there's a good reason why people often say, once all the humans have been wiped off of the face of the earth, you're just going to be left with roaches. The researchers who I talked to who were studying the biomechanics of cockroaches, they were interested in being able to engineer robots that have some of the abilities of roaches because roaches it turns out are able to not only run super fast it's like the equivalent of a human running 200 miles an hour is how fast a roach can go and what's amazing is if you cut off some of their legs they can run just as fast on four legs as they can on six legs and they can run half as fast on two legs as they can on six legs. So they're just, they're freaking incredible. They not only are gymnastic and they can like run into a wall head first and then immediately flip to like running straight up the wall, but they can squish themselves through teeny tiny little flat spaces like the size of, you know, a penny or two stacked. And they can go just as fast through that tiny little crevice as they can when they're running full speed. So they're pretty incredible. They're basically built to be able to get away from us and to be almost unsquishable. It is crazy how many wax with a flip-flop or something it takes to kill a cockroach in our house. Not that we have a ton of them, but when we come across them, not only do we have to 
beat them senselessly, but my wife insists that we put them in a plastic bag and throw them into the garbage outside. That's how afraid she is of cockroaches having this T-1000 effect and uh, regenerating back to life when it's all said and done. Yeah. The researchers in the lab, they put some crazy, I can't even remember off the top of my head, but some crazy amount of pressure on them, you know, like the equivalent of like several forklifts sitting on a human and it didn't squash them. It didn't hurt them at all. So you don't even have to worry about roaches being harmed in any of their experiments because they almost couldn't harm them. (laughs) Cockroaches make me shudder quite a bit when I read about them in this book, and so did this next subject. What is yellow soup? Oh, the yellow soup. Yeah, so yellow soup goes back to the ancient days in China and is written about in some ancient Chinese medical texts as being one cure for various ills of the gut, you know, diarrhea, things like that. And it basically involves drinking some of a watered down version of the feces of another person, a healthy person. And, you know, as gross as that sounds, we're really catching up to the olden days and doing a very similar thing now. There's one of the new things in treating gut infections is called a fecal transplant. And it's basically the same kind of thing, except that you don't have to drink the yellow soup. (laughs) They can just, you know, (laughs) they can actually uh, pump it into your gut through a nasal tube or um, give you a little capsule. Some of the scientists are starting to call them crapsules (laughs) 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 that that basically contains kind of a cleaned up version of the bacteria from healthy persons species and you basically get that into your own gut. So to get it into your gut, it either needs to come down from your mouth or it needs to go back up the other way. But one way or another, you get the healthy person's feces with all of the microbiome, all of the bacteria that live in that healthy person's gut, and you reintroduce those into the sick person's gut and try to restore that balance. So fecal transplants are a hot topic in the biohacking community. They actually do show promise in helping sick people feel better, huh? Absolutely. They're considered to be really the best way now to treat infections of um, Clostridium difficile or C. diff, Hmm. as people know it, which is, you know, an infection that a lot of people pick up in the hospital or, and it's just really debilitating. I mean, it causes terrible diarrhea and cramping and, you know, in some cases can even be life-threatening. And it's caused when, you know, this one kind of bacteria takes over and those other good bacteria are being outcompeted. So by introducing some more of those good bacteria from someone's good healthy poop, you can, you know, set the balance straight. Erica, there are two types of people on this planet, those who pee in the pool and those who lie about it. It was reassuring to read that there's not actually a chemical that creates a purple cloud when you pee in the wrong pool. But what does happen to pee once it ends up in the pool? Is it as simple as the chlorine or whatever other chemicals are in there? Just kill it off to where it's not a threat anymore? Well, it kind of depends how you look at that. I mean, yeah, the chlorine does react with the pee in a pool, whether it's killing it off, well, it's killing off any bacteria and things like, like that that are growing in the pool. So it's good for keeping, you know, your swimming pool water from being full of algae and bacteria. But that chlorine is also reacting with urine and forming 
all kinds of chlorine containing compounds that can actually be really toxic. So yeah, when you pee in the pool, in theory, if there was enough pee in a pool, you could actually generate enough of these chemicals to be harmful to the lungs, something that you wouldn't really ideally want to breathe in. Sort of like you don't want chloroform. It's, you know, similar kinds of chemicals to that. You don't really want to have these things in your pool. So the best thing you can do is just not pee in it. <laughs> but good luck with that. I, I don't think we're ever going to stop people from peeing in the pool. At the bare minimum, just avoid setting foot in those kiddie pools that are like a foot high and four by four, oh, because you know, those are, those are probably all urine at that point. There's not even any, yeah. any uh, swimming pool water left in those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, and it's going to concentrate over time. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, you do bust some myths, and that includes that urine is sterile. What has research yeah. told us about the sterility of urine? Well, we think of urine as being sterile because, you know, the way that the doctor tells you when you have a urinary tract infection is by seeing bacteria in your urine. That's when you go pee in the cup and then they go analyze that sample and see whether there are bacteria in it. But it turns out that some level of bacteria in your urinary system is normal. We're learning more and more about the microbiome, all these bacteria and bugs that live in our bodies. And when I say bugs, I don't mean insects. I just mean, you know, all the bacteria, there's viruses, there's all kinds of things that live in our bodies. And to some extent, those are perfectly normal. So there's almost no part of your body that's completely sterile, that's without bacteria. Even the brain is not necessarily entirely sterile, even though we think of it that way. Hmm. But the same goes for the urinary tract. There's actually some level of bacteria that's normal and probably healthy to be there. And the same is true. Scientists are starting to study things like the vagina and finding out that there's a whole kind of healthy community of normal bacteria that are there. And that's pretty similar to what you would find in a, a woman's urinary tract. So some of those bacteria are probably swapped back and forth and that's normal and healthy. Last couple of questions are another ode to my wife because they are subjects near and dear to her. First off, is clowns, specifically a hatred of clowns. She hates clowns. I'm not allowed to bring books that have clowns on the cover into our house. Why do so many people find clowns creepy and despicable? Yeah, you know, I think it's probably a relatively new thing. I mean, when you think back to the 50s and 40s, clowns were considered a thing for kids. It'd be perfectly appropriate to have clown printed wallpaper on your child's wall. I don't know very many people now who would do that. <laughs> and so that really shows us that our view of clowns has evolved probably largely through popular culture and depictions in movies and things like that where clowns are scary. But psychologists who I've spoken to say that clowns really are a prime candidate for seeming creepy <laughs> because what creepiness is that feeling of something being creepy as opposed to outright just scary or frightening is that with something that's creepy it's uncertain something seems off about it but you're not sure what you're not 100 percent clear on whether this thing is a threat or not and when you think about clowns they're kind of bizarre they're this weird mix of happy, fun, they should be nice. 
And then also that they have these big painted on smiles and sometimes they have like huge distorted feet. And <laughs> there's a lot of things about them that are incongruous. And so that really tends to set off our creepy radar because it's like, wait, is this thing safe or not? And clowns, they're kind of the whole point of them is that they act unpredictably and do crazy things. So either that can be fun or that can be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and they're creepy because your brain can't quite decide which it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like clowns never stood a chance. I mean, they're set back at least 50 to 100 years after Stephen King's It on top of John absolutely. Wayne Gacy being a serial killing clown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think those things alone probably tipped the balance for clowns. <laughs> I grew up reading way too many Stephen King books. Probably I was too young to really be reading them but i loved them and it just scared the heck out of me and still to this day i don't think i would ever look at a clown the same way you have a great way with words i'm curious have you read and been influenced by stephen king's on writing i have i've read his book on writing probably at least three times excellent yeah and it's funny you know my husband is not such a big fan of stephen king books <laughs> And he's like, well, you know, what makes you think that Stephen King is such a great writer that you would want writing advice from him? And I'm like, you know, Stephen King, I wouldn't describe his writing as being um, a very serious literary style, but that's kind of what I like about it because boy, does he tell a great story. I really appreciate how his plots move along <laughs> and just his way of writing in a way that really keeps you in the moment, really keeps you focused on, on what you're reading. For me, you know, the whole world just drops away when I'm reading good fiction like that. And if you want to stay away from the truly scary stuff, you can try something like Different Seasons, which, of course, served as the inspiration for Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption amongst the right. four stories. Right. Yeah. Underrated in terms of his writing ability, I believe. And last subject that you covered that we're going to talk about today is misophonia. That's a condition where certain sounds trigger anger and or anxiety. For instance, my lovely wife can't stand to be around people who are loud chewers, loud oh. drinkers, and yeah. she yells at our dogs when they lick themselves, even from across the room. It's just those sounds are like nails on a chalkboard for her. What has brain yes. research revealed about why people experience what is casually known as sound rage? Yeah, and this is one I can completely relate to your wife's predicament <laughs> with that. I, have, I consider myself to have misophonia. And for me, it's the chewing sounds and the mouth noises. Someone chewing gum is just the most <laughs> revolting and stress-inducing thing they can do around me. I have literally gotten up in the DC metro in the subway and moved to another car. To wow. get, <laughs> like gotten off and then gotten back on, an, on another car because I had to get away from somebody who was smacking chewing gum. I just can't stand it. So what scientists have discovered is that it's not just that we are irritated by these sounds, like so-called normal people <laughs> might find certain sounds irritating, but in the brain of someone with misophonia, those sounds are actually, it seems like being processed differently. And so when you think about it, there's parts of your brain that are involved in that fight or flight response where you get angry or you get anxious and <laughs> that makes you 
want to either hit someone or run away. And that's a pretty good description of what it feels like for me when someone's smacking on chewing gum real loud next to me. It really feels a lot like that fight or flight instinct. And it turns out that that's pretty similar to what's going on in the brain in terms of some areas being activated and others underactivated. And so the part of the brain that's saying, oh, there's a noise, I should pay attention to it, is ramped up. And it's sending that message on to parts of the brain that handle emotion and fear. And so you end up over interpreting the sound as a threat, as something that could induce that fight or flight response. Whereas for other people, they might just filter that out. They might hear someone chewing and their brain is going to take that input and say, okay, that's not a very important sound. I'm not going to pay too much attention to it. But my brain pays a lot of attention (laughs) (laughs) to certain sounds. And that's basically happening for a lot of people. For some people, it can be really debilitating, taken to an extreme. There are people that lose relationships over this that can't eat out in public at all or have a really hard time in a office workplace environment. Imagine if you can't stand the sound of someone typing on a keyboard and you had to work in an office. It really like makes you feel like you're crazy. So yeah, it's actually can be a pretty big problem for a lot of people. Hmm. And last question, you've obviously done a great job of covering so many interesting topics and gory details, but there's an endless supply of subjects out there that fit that gross, that morbid, that unique quality that you look for in stories to Mm -hmm. delve further into. What is the grossest or most morbid question that you have yet to answer, at least right now, in a manner that satisfies you? Oh, gosh. Wow. The most gross or morbid one. So my mind immediately jumped, instead of gross or morbid, my mind immediately jumped to the most taboo things because that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately. So one big story that I've been working on, actually I was starting to report on this when the pandemic started in March and it threw off all of my reporting for this story, but I've been thinking a lot about the menstrual cycle and about periods, basically, mm. and how our scientific understanding of the menstrual cycle is changing and our social attitudes about it are changing these days. And that's one of those things like, I'm not going to say that periods are gross. I think periods are not gross at all. But society tends to think periods are gross, right? So in that sense, it's a gross topic. But I'm really interested in how we break down those taboos and how those taboos have affected our knowledge and understanding of our own bodies, which I think in the case of periods, you know, and and the menstrual cycle, it really has. I mean, I think that there's still a lot of stigma and taboos around women's menstrual cycles, and it's still something that holds women back in the sense of negative stereotypes. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that periods were used as an excuse for why women couldn't be astronauts or couldn't, you know, couldn't be president, (laughs) things like that, because, you know, oh, of course, you're going to have PMS and you're going to go crazy. 
every month, things like that. So I'm really interested right now in thinking about those kinds of taboos and how those play out in science and how that affects our lives. Erica Engelhaupt is a longtime science writer and editor whose work has appeared in National Geographic, Science News, Scientific America, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and NPR. National Geographic is also where you can find her Gory Details blog, which has spawned her first book. It's titled Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science. Erica, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderfully entertaining book. Thank you so much. It's been a blast talking to you. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to check out booksonpod.com to hear all the episodes of this podcast or to subscribe through Spotify, Apple, or plenty of other podcasting platforms. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.